Dr. David Jones was one of the most wise and godly men I have ever had the privilege of knowing. David Jones was a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis for 40 years. Um, I had the privilege of studying under him for several courses. Uh, he wrote an article, and I, I came across this just hunting around with some different things. He wrote this, this piece, I'm going to read to you an excerpt of it, uh, 40 years ago. Excuse me, not for it was 1996. So he served for 40 years, but it was 1996 that he wrote this piece uh, in the, the Francis Schaeffer newsletter, Francis Schaeffer Institute's newsletter, in the spring of uh, winter 1996. And listen to what what he said. In 1906, W. E. B. Du Bois made his famous prophecy: "The problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line." You know, the color line is still a problem when, as the most heavily publicized ongoing trial went to jury, now, just a quick aside, this is 1996, he's referring to the double homicide trial of O.J. Simpson. That's what he's talking about when he says, you know, everybody's talking about that in the mid-90s, that's what he's referring to here. You know the color line is still a problem when, as the most heavily publicized ongoing trial in history went to jury... Three out of four white Americans thought the defendant should be convicted, and three out of four black Americans thought he should be acquitted. The only way to account for this discrepancy in judgment along racial lines is the divergent life experiences of the two groups with the toxic waste of racism. If the color line is the problem, what is the solution? If racial barriers divide people, what will bring them together? If folks are alienated on account of race, how can they be reconciled? And that was 1996 that he is writing this. I went and did a little bit of work and, and began to search on some, some statistics and surveys done just very recently and in just in recent years. And when these same questions regarding not just O.J. Simpson in 1996 were written about, but you look at just five, year, five years ago with the events in Ferguson... And you look at recent surveys done today regarding what happened in Minnesota with George Floyd, the statistics, my friends, they are not any better. The color line is still there. So are the questions. What's the answer? What's the answer? I have a Bible, I ask you to turn with me to the book of Acts. We are pushing on in this mini-series here, here in the heat of the summer, uh, looking at the book of Acts and, and allowing the history of the early church to inform some of these pressing questions. And uh, this, this sermon, not really a sermon, but the address that Paul gives there in the city of Athens at the Areopagus, or oftentimes referred to as Mars Hill. It's very instructive here. It's very instructive in terms of the answer to these questions about the color line. Acts 17, starting in verse 16, reading on through verse 34. Acts 17, starting in verse 16, and reading on through verse 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. 
Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Well, let's uh, stop here before we go any further and pray. Would you bow your heads? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, that is our prayer this morning, and indeed may it increasingly be our prayer. That longing that our thoughts, our words, our actions, our coming and going, our everything, would be lived with a a knowledge, a consciousness, an awareness that all we are and do is before the living God. Indeed, this morning, we are in Your presence. You are present here with us as You are everywhere, as You are at home, as You are at work, as You are when we're having conversation at the table or surfing the internet or reading a book walking the dog, doing chores, it doesn't matter. Everywhere, everywhere we are before You. 
all of life is to be lived before you. We ask that you would shape us this morning according to your word. Help us to understand the implications of what Paul was saying there that day in the city of Athens to those people. These things, these words as they reverberate down through the corridors of history are as true today as they were then. And we ask for wisdom. We ask for the moving of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us teachable hearts. We are a stubborn bunch. We are often, more often, hard of heart and slow to learn. And we pray for your mercy upon every one of us in this room and every one of us listening and watching here this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. You may have heard reports this past week that uh, it is well nigh possible, not certain of course, but well nigh possible that sometime in the first half of 2021 there may well be a publicly available vaccine for COVID-19. Possibly. We'll have to see. The federal government, of course, is working hand-in-hand with no few pharmaceutical companies And those companies are working as hard as they possibly can to try and come up with some solution to this this virus. Uh, All of which bears out, of course, this this axiom that, that is certainly true in this case, that there are, given the fact that there are all these different entities trying and working towards this common goal, that in in some cases, that certainly is the, the true, that there can be different but helpful ways to address the same problem. Oftentimes, there can be different and helpful ways to try and get at and to address the same problem. That may well be true when it comes to a a virus pandemic. It is not true when it comes to a spiritual pandemic. There are not various ways to get to that needed end when we consider the spiritual pandemic of racism. There are not multiple ways towards that goal. There's really but, but one. We're speaking here, we're talking here, we're thinking here about a, a, a spiritual problem at the heart level that absolutely demands a spiritual solution at the heart level. Now, let me unpack that uh, and, and, and take you on, a, on a, something of an argument, and you need to stay with me on this, Okay. To the degree that we rely upon our flawed, unfinished works, to the degree that we rely upon our flawed, unfinished works instead of the perfect, finished work of Jesus for our security and our significance, to the degree that we are relying on on us instead of Him, we will be desperately, radically insecure. Down deep within, within the human heart, that's the dynamic that's in, that's in play with every man, woman, and child, and it's the way it's been ever, ever since the fall, to the degree that we are doing that we will be desperately insecure. Therein, instinctively, the human heart then seeks out a way to bolster that sense of, of security, and therein will flail about like a, a, a drowning man or woman flailing about looking for something 
to strengthen their subje- our subjective sense of, of meaning and worth and goodness. And we will oftentimes flail about and seize upon such things as, well, they're outside of ourselves, but they have to do with us, things such as our tribe, our party, our race, to try and bolster that sense of significance and security and worth and value because, again, it's being driven by this deep-seated sense of insecurity before the living God. You don't have to be conscious of this to, for these things, these things to be happening. They just do. That inevitably sets in motion a comparison game between my tribe, my party, my race, and yours. That inevitably sets in motion an air of not just comparison, but an us versus them dynamic, and a, a toxic air of superiority, which then takes you to this inevitable place racism, and treating people according to the differences as perceived by us in our eyes. You see, this is a deep-seated thing. Okay, that was the argument. I'm going to pull out of that, and let's come back to the the main trail here, okay? This is a deep-seated spiritual problem at the heart level. How in the world can we hope to address a deep-seated spiritual problem at the heart level? There's only one way, and there's only forever been one way to get at that, to get at the roots of that, and that is the gospel. And that is the gospel. The gospel is our best and only hope for racial reconciliation. The gospel is our best and only hope for racial reconciliation, and this is made clear in the very basics of the message, the very basics and essentials of the gospel message. And that comes out in Paul's message there at the Areopagus. You're wondering, how does this factor into Acts 17? That's where we're going. That's where we're going. Basic essentials that Paul is speaking to there at the Areopagus. These things, these three things, if you've printed out your outline, you can see this. First, our common humanity. Second, our common shame. And third, our common hope. These essentials, these basics of the gospel message take us to the one sure hope we have, the one hope, the only hope we have, in addressing the spiritual pandemic of racism. Let's look at these in turn. First, our common humanity. Uh, Paul is, of course, there in Athens addressing the Athenians. Those of you who know anything about ancient Athens, you may know that this was a people that deemed themselves to be the most wise and noble civilization on the face of the earth. Paul then, in speaking to them, uh, adri- uh, comes at them speaking of our common shared humanity. And that's, you can see this in verses 24 through 28. Let me read that again. Verses 24 to 28. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind 
to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He is, not, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring." Paul is speaking here to these people there at the Areopagus of our shared origin. God is our creator. God is the creator of everything that there ever has been and every person and every human person. So you can really say in a profound way that we have a shared lineage, ultimately, a shared lineage traced back to His, the Lord's creative work at the very beginning. We have this shared origin. God is creator. God is sustainer. Paul speaks to that here as well. He stresses the greatness of God. And, and there, you know, that's the positive way of, of speaking of the folly of, the idol, of idolatry. He speaks of, the, he stresses the greatness of God. He needs nothing. He needs nothing. He stresses the greatness of God and the dependence of man, mankind. We need everything. He needs nothing. We need everything. And that is true of us all, of every man, woman, and child. This is the grand equalizer, our shared origin and our shared story. Paul speaks to that here as well. God's rule, His, his sovereignty, His ordaining the history and geography of nations, of world history, His hand on the wheel in everything all the time. Paul speaks to that. And His purpose... His purpose in all these things in the global macro and micro level that we would know Him, that we would know Him and that He would be known. The Lord God, the living God is not the God as the deists would say, utterly removed from His creation, but nor is He as the pantheists say, utterly enmeshed and part of His creation. No, no. He is the personal creator, sovereign King, whom we can know. This is our shared origin. This is our shared experience, and it points us towards our common humanity. Every one of us, every one of us on the face of this earth. It's part of the basic of, of the message. In, in uh, June, June 8, 1941, C.S. Lewis ascended the pulpit at the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford and gave one of the most insightful sermons of the 20th century. There's an excerpt from it in your quotes and notes if you got that there in front of you. It's often referred to as the weight of glory. Now, after a paragraph or two in that quote, I'm going to pick up uh, in there and, and read to you some of Lewis's words from, from that sermon in 1941. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. 
You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. What is Lewis telling us here? He is speaking to nothing more, nothing less than the wonder, the glory of our common humanity. Our common humanity that every single person... Red, yellow, black, and white has been made in the image according to the likeness of the living God. David says in Psalm 8 that every single person has been crowned with glory and honor. Now, what does that mean? That means that if we dare demean or deny the full dignity and glory of another human being. We are in that moment, in that very terrible existential moment, also demeaning and denying the glory of God Himself. Do you see how this connects? This basic, essential point of the gospel this shared humanity we have. It's where Paul begins in his gospel presentation, if you can put it that way. This simple, basic point of the gospel speaks to the fact that the gospel is, in fact, our one whole, one soul, sure hope in addressing the pandemic of racial pride and disunity, the one hope we have in racial, towards racial reconciliation. The gospel is our one sure hope here. Well, that takes us to the second point. Not just our common humanity, but our common shame. Not just our common humanity, but our common depravity. Our common depravity. That's true. Just as truly as we're all made in the image and the likeness of God, we are equally fallen at the same time. And here, too, here, too, this takes us in the direction of addressing this this issue. Paul, after he quotes from these Greek authors makes a shift. You see this in verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, this call to repent in that context surely had to have come as something of a shock to Paul's hearers. They're not really accustomed to hearing a call to repent at the Areopagus. But that is, in fact, what what he does. And what what does it mean? To repent in the New Testament language simply means to turn. To turn from and to turn towards. Which implies, of course, there is a need to turn. There is a need for change. Going further, it implies there is such a thing as objective truth. And Paul understands that as in imploring his readers to grasp, excuse me, his listeners, 
to grapple with this and, in fact, to turn, to repent. Why is this needed? Because, as he says, the times of ignorance are over. The time of not knowing has come to an end because the true and living God has come. Jesus has come in the flesh. The revelation of God has come upon us. The time of ignorance, the time of not knowing is over, is over. And it is time to turn. It is time to repent. And there he speaks then to the pull of idols, the pull of, of idols. Now, for them, it was, it was rather obvious, the pull of idols upon their, their hearts. If you go back with me to verse 16, the beginning of the text that uh, we've been reading Uh, Acts 17, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So what did Paul see? Well, literally he sees, well, not literally, but it's something of a metaphor, a city full of idols, a city full of shrines and temples and statues and altars, and in fact, an altar to the unknown God, just so that they would be able to cover all their bases. And that was actually something that archaeologists and historians have told us. Those things existed in cities of those days, in that culture. What did, that's what he saw. What did he feel? Well, Luke tells us here. He, it tells us that he was, his spirit was provoked within him. He is deeply distressed. He, he is mourning. He is grieving for the glory of God to be robbed in the worship of these false gods and lives, human lives, given over to lies. And so his, he is grieved. He is jealous for God's glory to be rightly given, given unto, unto him. And so his spirit is provoked within him. Now, as has been alluded to already, and the, and the guys, as they were reading and praying some of the passages earlier in the, the service, idolatry is not just an ancient old thing that just requires you know, a little statue or a little totem or a little whatever. No, it is far deeper than that. That's an expression of a much deeper thing that's still with us today. Idolatry, how would you define that? Just very simply, it's, it's, it's trusting, giving yourself, following a God substitute, giving yourself towards a God substitute, making that your identity, making that your security, making that your, your hope and your trust and what you're counting on and what you're pursuing. Now, of, co- of course, some of the obvious ones we might say are, are, are money, the pursuit of money, and sex and fame. Okay, those, those are what we might call even surfacey idols. That's how they're oftentimes referred to. There are deeper idols that oftentimes are at the, even beneath those things that drive us towards pursuing the stuff on the surface. The pursuit, the love of power or control or comfort or affection, approval. It's very subtle, very dangerous. It's very common. It's very human. I think it was alluded to already, uh, this phrase, but I'll give you the, the source. John Calvin said that our hearts indeed are idle factories. It is not, my friends, I, I hate to break the news to you. It is not a matter of if you are worshiping, I am worshiping, we are worshiping false gods, idols. It is not a matter of if. It is a matter of what. 
is a matter of, of, of what. And the scriptures speak of this as cosmic treason against our king. The Old Testament prophets spoke of it as spiritual adultery by the one who has betrothed us. This is our shared depravity, our shared common shame. And again, it is true to us all. It levels us all out. There's no one that can claim superiority over another on this score. We're all standing on level ground, equally depraved in this sense. I'll read you an excerpt from an article I came across this past week. The, the title may surprise you. Stay with me. The Cure for Racism is Cancer. The Cure for Racism is Cancer. The first time you park your car in the vast, cold cavern of the underground garage and step into the hospital elevator, you may feel alien and forsaken. Perhaps you'll feel that you have been singled out, unfairly plucked from your healthy life, and cast into this cruel ordeal of cancer. Walking through the lobby with a manila envelope of x-rays under your arm and a folder of lab reports and notes from your previous doctor, you'll sense the deep tremor of your animal fear, a barely audible uneasiness trickling up from somewhere inside you. But there is good news, too, as you pass one hallway after another looking for elevator B. You'll see this place is full of people riding the escalators, reading books and magazines, checking their phones near the coffee pots. And it will dawn on you that most of these people have cancer. In fact, it seems as if the whole world has cancer. With relief and dismay, you'll realize, I'm not special. Everyone here has cancer. The withered old Jewish lefty newspaper editor, the Latino landscape contractor with the stone roughened hands, the tough lesbian with the bleached blonde crew cut and the black leather jacket, and you will be cushioned and bolstered by the sheer number and variety of your fellows. And the author goes on from there to say that cancer is in many ways the one true democracy. It just levels everyone out to the same ground. It doesn't just put us in our place, but it puts us in the same place. Again, this is getting at our shared depravity, our common shame. Friends, please hear me. There is nowhere on the face of this earth that you can go. And there is no group of people among whom you can stand and rightly think yourself to be morally superior to them. Not before God. That's what the Pharisees did. That's what the Pharisees did. We have the same shame... We have the same shame. We are all idolaters. This is deeply humbling. And it levels us all out. And again, you can see how the gospel is our one sure hope. When we understand these things, it's our one sure hope for racial reconciliation. And you see this in the very basics of the message. And in this case, our, not just our shared humanity, but our shared depravity. Which then takes us, this would be a terrible place to end, which then takes us to our common hope. 
our common hope. If you'll uh, look with me again at the text, back to Acts 17. Uh, again, verse 30, now reading just a little bit further. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by, men, by a man, by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. The Lord did not leave us on our own. He did not leave us in this state. His love, if, you can, if we can possibly speak of the living God being constrained, He was inwardly compelled by His love for us to move towards us and take initiative with us, sending His Son to die for us. And that one, Jesus, is whom Paul speaks. He dares to speak of Jesus, the risen Jesus. Paul is so bold to speak, so right to speak of Jesus there on the streets of Athens, wise Athens of all places. He speaks of the resurrection of Jesus as an actual event, not the memory of His teaching living on, not as, as, as a myth created by His followers, but as something that happened in time and space, an historically verifiable event, an empty tomb, a risen Savior, and real witnesses. Paul speaks of the resurrection of Jesus as a, a real event. And you can see, you can feel it, the implications just in Acts 17, to say nothing of the rest of the book of Acts and his letters, the implications for, of this for Paul. There he is as this former Pharisee walking the streets of Athens. Again, at this time, it's deemed to be, as the reputation to be, the, the wisest, most noble place on the face of the earth. And But Paul, Paul, because he knows what is truly true and really real, Paul has eyes to actually see and actually know and clearly, compassionately, but with conviction, speak Because he knows Jesus to be risen. He knows who Jesus is. This, gives him, this actual event gives him real assurance of who Jesus is, not just another teacher, but the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God come in the flesh. That actual event gives Paul the assurance of knowing who Jesus is and what is coming. Yes, Paul dares to speak in the streets of Athens in that place of judgment day. Of a day that is coming when we will all be held accountable and all will be made right. And all will be made right. And that's our common hope. For the follower of Jesus, for the disciple of the Christ, that's our common hope. And that is true for all true Christians, 
That is our common hope. That is our shared hope. The New Testament is so clear, could not be clearer on this point, that all the, in Christ, all the old distinctions have lost their power. All the old distinctions, all the old ways, all the old divisions of the ways we assess one another and think of one another and put one another over and under and and feelings and sinful ideas of superiority and inferiority, all those things. Now, distinction still exists, that's not the point, but the the sinful way we think of those distinctions and, and weaponize them in our relationships one with another and, and culturally as, as well. The New Testament could not be clearer on this point that the most important way that we could possibly think of ourselves does not have anything to do with the color of our skin or the heritage of our culture or the preferences of our politics. The most important way we could think of ourselves, the person in the mirror and the person to your right and left, has nothing to do with any of those things but whether or not they are in Christ, whether or not they are your brother and sister, whether or not they are a member of the body of Christ, whether or not they are a fellow disciple. Friends, we've been made one. Because of the gospel, because of the reality of the resurrection, we've been made one. Now, let me ask a question. Anybody here in this room, anybody watching on that camera, you're keeping this at arm's length. Did you know what it was you rejected? The reality of His having made us one? You keep this, you're keeping this at arm's length. Do you really know what you're rejecting? Or those of us in this room and those of us watching, let me, let me twist that, spin that question just a little bit. Let's say you are, in fact, a disciple of Jesus. Do you know what is it, in fact, you have embraced? The wonder of this message and its implications for us, do you, do you really know what you have embraced? The gospel is our one Sure hope for racial reconciliation and the very basics of this message make it abundantly clear. There is power. There is power at work in this message, the message of the gospel. As it confronts us, as it heals us, as it transforms us, there is power Think with me. Let's go back. Let's peel through the, 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 centru- the, the decades and centuries of, of even our own history. Have you ever thought about the stunning miracle? And I don't use that word lightly. The astonishing miracle that so many African-American slaves put their hope in Christ, the white man's Savior. You ever thought about the miracle of that? And in, in any human way, that makes no sense at all. No sense at all. That's a miracle. Or, or that at the very core, the essence of the civil rights movement was the gospel. Or, just a few years ago, do you remember Dylan Roof? The young man who walked into a prayer meeting at Emmanuel AME Church on June 17, 2015, and murdered nine people in cold blood, a young white supremacist. Do you remember the response 
the response of the survivors and the family members of the people he killed, the forgiveness those individuals extended to that young man, how do you explain that except by the power of the gospel? Or if I can take this to just a one individual story, a guy by the name of Tom Terrence. Tom Terrence was a white supremacist who, because uh, he was caught attempting to blow up the home of a Jewish businessman, was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Terrence grew up going to church somewhere in Alabama. When every Sunday with his family thought himself to be saved, even as he was plotting terrorism. He thought he was fighting for God and country. That's the way he put it. But over time, in his days, weeks, months, years there in prison, he started reading a Bible. And that, combined with the reality that he just couldn't get away, he just couldn't avoid mixing things up, I mean, just forming relationships with non-whites, All those two things working together, the Bible reading and just the reality of his interactions with other human beings, crushed his racial stereotypes. And in time, Tom Terrence became a Christian. A few years went by, and because of a work release program and the hard labors of some advocates on his behalf, he was released. He he was a free man. He's now 72. He is currently the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute in Washington, D.C., a discipleship uh, ministry. He has served as co-pastor of a multiracial church, served as an interim pastor at an Asian-American church, and has been an integral part of no few racial reconciliation events in the D.C. area. Now, how do you explain this? The power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Now, oftentimes, the, the way these, these stories work, there's, one, there's a common thread when performers like Tom Terrence escape their indoctrination and ignorance. Uh, There's a common thread in these stories of a someone, of a someone who took pity on them, of a someone who showed them compassion, empathy, kindness. In Terrence's case, it was the non-whites in that prison who befriended him and the Jewish attorney who stuck up for him it was uh, the, uh, the ladies' prayer group who refused to stop interceding for him. Oftentimes, these stories have a, have a thread like that, a someone, a someone. There's also a something. The power of Jesus through the gospel. The power of Jesus through the gospel to convict and transform bent, twisted hearts like yours and mine. 
The message of the gospel is our one sure hope towards racial reconciliation. The very basics of this message make that clear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is really so, so obvious. Our shared humanity, our common shame, our shared hope. Oh, Lord, as your image bearers, everyone we will ever meet, whoever they are, whatever they look like, wherever they come from, is worthy, worthy. We owe respect to every human being because of who and what they are. We know because of the gospel, even our own experience, we know we are fallen, every one of us. And before we look and apply that to any other person, we need to apply it to ourselves as fallen. Oh, that you would instill within us a deep humility as we are leveled out on the same ground before you, the living God. And Lord Jesus, those of us who would be named as your disciples, who have put our hope in faith in the gospel and your work, your finished work on our behalf. We have nothing that we can claim as any ultimate identity but you. And to the degree that we claim anything else, we are, we are at best kidding ourselves and at worst really belittling what you have done for us. We have a heart problem. You have a heart solution. And we ask that you would begin with us, the church, as we talk about the ails of our culture and the rifts of our society and all that is wrong. Oh, would you deal with us first? to deeply believe and then to see and live out of these things, would you bring, oh, Holy Spirit, revival that would sweep across this land? But we know from the history of your dealings that always begins with your people. It always begins with a renewal of your people. We would be so bold, and we pray this with trembling, that you would begin with us, that the world may know. We pray in your name. Amen.